This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Two cards this week. Corey Snyder, outfielder, shortstop for Cleveland, card number 620. And card number 789, the Cleveland 1987 Team Leaders card. All right, two cards. Always good to knock two out of the queue. But before we get to these, David, we do have a couple of items that came in through the mailbag about last week's episode on Phil Garner. First of all, listener Ryan wrote in in the mailbag about the song Rocky Top. He kind of took the bait that I laid last week when I said that my spouse knew the lyrics to the song Rocky Top, but did not know that it was the unofficial fight song of the University of Tennessee Volunteers. And he surmised that perhaps she knew the song because she had been exposed to the show Hee Haw as a child. Good guess, Ryan, but that is incorrect. So the reason that My partner knows the song Rocky Top is because she was taught Rocky Top at Sunday school in Catholic church. I need more detail. We'll probably need more episodes of follow-up. I I tried to find out at what age it was that she had learned this, why on earth the Sunday school teacher thought this song was appropriate for teens. But regardless, that is how she learned the song. It was not in marching band practice. It was not in courtside band practice. It was... Nothing else, even though she was a clarinet player. She learned Rocky Top in church. I know that we have a couple of clergy member listeners, so I'm interested to hear if there's a ecumenical reason for Rocky Top, <laughs> some kind of biblical references to drinking corn out of a jar, the, the book of Rocky Top. I went to Sunday school. I did not learn Rocky Top, but I went to Sunday school in the Chicago suburbs, not in Texas. So maybe yeah. it's different. I didn't know that fight songs were a part of CCD, but I'm glad to know that the, the curriculum must have changed with the new Pope. Who knows? But but regardless, thank you, Ryan, for that suggestion. And keep those mailbag posts coming. You can always find us on Facebook, on Twitter, and also Gmail. Our email address is 1988topspodcast at gmail.com. Our second post in the mailbag comes from one of those clergy, listener Rev, who had suggested Joey Meyer earlier in the series and lifelong Brewers fan. He wrote in and said, we suffered through a lot of Phil Garner's not so great managing in Milwaukee. David wondered why Garner was around so long as manager of the Brewers in the 1990s when they stunk. Well, look no further than who was his GM. One Sal Bando, who you mentioned, was kind of sweet on Phil from back in their days with the A's. It was a bromance that led to the basement. Oh, such what a great letter. So thank you, Rev. We appreciate you writing in. And that helps to give us some context. I did just learn that that Bando resigned after... Garner's firing, so that friendship remains strong throughout some mediocre years in Milwaukee. Yeah, a decade of futility for the Brew Crew, leading to some job changes. But speaking the... of a decade of futility, <laughs> Cleveland baseball. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's the subject this week as we get to Corey Snyder. So, David, why this player and why these cards today? Friend of the show, John, is a fan of the Cleveland Guardians. 
Yes, they exist. Cleveland baseball fans. We've only done two Cleveland cards in the series. The 80s were not a good time for Cleveland baseball or Cleveland sports generally. But when John and I were talking about this set, he said, oh, then you're going to have to talk about Corey Snyder. John also told me his favorite player is Dwayne Kuyper. Unfortunately, Dwayne Kuyper didn't play in 1987, so he did not end up in the set. So we're going to go with Corey Snyder this week. And in 1988, I was excited to get a Corey Snyder card. I definitely went to a card show at the Geneva Holiday Inn and mm. bought a Corey Snyder rookie card, his 1987 Tops All-Star Rookie Corey had a quick start to his career and was really an all-or-nothing slugger for a few seasons in Cleveland. So here you go, John, as we delve into the depressing morass that is <laughs> Cleveland baseball from 
Born November 11th, 1962 in Inglewood, California, with a home in Camarillo, California. Matt, 1988 was peak Corey. It was the 59th most popular name in 1988. This is right around the time that Corey Haim and Corey Feldman were were becoming big stars and showing up on magazine covers everywhere. They had starred in The Lost Boys in 1987, Licensed to Drive in 1988. Their names were spelled slightly differently with an E in there ahead of the Y. Corey with an E was the 56th most popular name that year. So two pretty highly ranked names, a lot of Corys. And I wonder if Corey Snyder had anything to do with that. But (laughs) coming off his strong 1986 season... He was born in Inglewood, as you said. According to Tupac, Inglewood is always up to no good. But Corey's family moved to the Santa Clarita Valley when he was young. This is in the northwestern part of Los Angeles County. Before 1960, there wasn't much there, mostly ranches. It was used for filming westerns. But that population grew quickly from 3,000 in 1950 to 15,000 in 1960. The city of Santa Clarita is now over 200,000 in population and home to Six Flags Magic Mountain. It also has a shockingly detailed Wikipedia article. (laughs) So much so that I really did not have the energy or desire to comb through it to find many fun historical facts. There's a separate Wikipedia for Canyon Country, and Canyon Country sounds like majestic, but that is a neighborhood in Santa Clarita where Corey grew up. The movie Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead was filmed there, Also, a home featured in the movie Real Genius was in Canyon Country. I am a little bit baffled by Santa Clarita. I think I need to go on a a fact-finding mission or a vision quest out to Santa Clarita. (laughs) Maybe I need to just watch the the Santa Clarita diet on Netflix. Yeah, I think it's pretty easy to get Southern California culture. If you're desperate to find it, I think it's pretty easy to find. Famous Santa Claritans include James Shields, who the White Sox famously traded Fernando Tatis Jr. to get. I'm not bitter about that one at all. Cesar Millian, the dog training guy, which is relevant because Taylor Lautner, the wolf guy from Twilight, is also from (laughs) Santa Clarita. And Olivia Moultrie, who played for the Portland Thorns this past year at age 15. So a professional soccer player at age 15, also from Santa Clarita. Corey's dad, Jim, played minor league ball. And he coached Corey growing up. Corey's given name was James Corey Snyder, but he went by that middle name. His dad, having some baseball experience, he knew that Corey was a good athlete and he helped Corey develop his skills. And he would continue to coach him throughout his career. I've seen it said that this led to a little bit of a dispute when he was in Cleveland and that Cleveland management didn't want him coaching his son when he was a professional. And and it led to a little bit of a rift between father and son. Corey went to Canyon High School, where he's a baseball star, as a pitcher. He was so good that he earned a scholarship at BYU, but he was moved to third base and later shortstop. In his first three at-bats as a freshman, he hit three home runs off the first three pitches he saw. (laughs) Legendary. He was a legend at BYU. (laughs) So there was no turning back. They were not going to put him back on the mound. They wanted him at the plate. But he did from his time pitching, have a strong arm. So he was had a good arm at shortstop or at third base, wherever he was playing. And he really didn't look back after those three home runs. That freshman year, he hit 419, 25 home runs, 72 RBIs, and was freshman of the year in Baseball America magazine. 
Yeah, that's a pretty incredible line for a freshman. 1983 ends up being a great year for BYU baseball in general, and Corey was a big part of that. They move him to shortstop, and he continues to tear it up. He had a 32-game hitting streak and was in the top 10 nationally in home runs, total bases, RBIs, and batting average, and again hit over 400. In only his sophomore season, he set the Western Athletic Conference career home run record with 46. And he wasn't the only great player on that BYU team that we've heard of. They also had Wally Joyner, Rick Aguilera on that team. They won the WAC championship, went to the College World Series as the number one seed. But unfortunately, their home stadium didn't have lights. So the Cougar baseball field was unable to host tournament games. So they couldn't play night games, and they had to play on the road. They were upset in the first round by Arizona State with a young, thin Barry Bonds. Even though they failed in the College World Series, Corey was part of Team USA for the Pan Am Games. That was the year the U.S. took bronze. And then in his junior year, Corey again hits over 400, so that's three years in a row. This time he hits 450, setting the BYU season record with 27 home runs and taking his career total to 73, which still remains the Western Athletic Conference record. His career slash line at BYU was 432, 475, 854 for a career OPS of 1.329. And his slugging percentage remains a whack record. He was an All-American and named to the U.S. team for the 1984 L.A. Olympic Games, where he hit 400 in the team's silver medal campaign, along with Mike Dunn, Mark McGuire, Oda B. McDowell, and other greats. He also earned a really high spot in the draft, fourth overall, three picks ahead of Mike Dunn and six ahead of Mark McGuire. That takes us to the This Way to the Clubhouse that Corey signed as a first-round draft selection with the Indians June 9th, 1984 by scout Edward Lee Bain. This is no relation to the Batman villain, but he is related to (laughs) Dan Bain. And Dan Bain is his brother, the CEO of Trader Joe's. I wonder if any two-buck chuck was used in the celebration of this draft selection. Well, like his brother, Eddie Lee Bain was able to find value with his players. Maybe. (laughs) But Eddie Bain, as a pitcher at Arizona State, was regarded as one of the best collegiate pitchers in history. He threw the only Arizona State perfect game, holds the school strikeout record, and was a first-round pick himself by the Twins and played for the Twins organization for nine years. He had a long career as a scout for Cleveland, the Rays, and Angels, and in 2017 won the George Genovese Lifetime Achievement Award in Scouting. And he signed Corey Snyder to a $137,000 signing bonus after that Olympic experience in 1984. He starts out at Waterbury, Connecticut in 1985, which is double A. And he performs as expected offensively. This leads to the fun fact in the back of the card that Corey led the Eastern League with 28 home runs and 94 RBIs at Waterbury in 1985 and was selected as Loop's MVP. He hit 28 home runs, 94 RBIs. He had a lot of strikeouts, 123 in 139 games. He hit 281 and also walked 44 times, which is more patience than he would show through much of his major league career. He did play most of his games at this time at third base, and he made 31 errors. So there was still 
some work to be done on the defensive side of the game, but a good start that earned him a spot in AAA to open 1986. Yeah, and he was involved in an incident in May 1986 when the Maine Guides played against Rochester. He hit a pop fly that was caught, and out of frustration, he threw his bat, and he ended up hitting two women in the stands, one who cut her lip, and the other one had a broken nose from the bat that had flown and hit them. And in his next at bat, the Rochester pitcher threw at him, which led to a benches-clearing brawl, and he was tossed from the game, and then arrested after the game and charged with assault. The charges were later dropped, but Corey said he intended to throw the bat into the dugout, but it stuck to his glove due to pine tar, and it was a mistake. Generally, throughout his career, Corey Snyder is thought of as a really good guy, and really, in interviews, reporters even say that he kind of goes out of his way to not offend anybody (laughs) and just he's he seems like a really a really good dude and he doesn't drink from everything I've seen there weren't any character issues and so it really did seem like an unfortunate mistake these two women had some pretty serious injuries a broken nose as well as the it wasn't just a cut lip but also some dental damage as well they sued for two plus million dollars and It took a couple years, but Corey did settle out of court. Aside from that unpleasant incident, he kept up the good performance offensively through 49 games. He hit 302 with a 542 slugging percentage. On defense, he's still playing at third, slightly better, at least in terms of errors, only eight in those 49 games. He did play well enough to earn a call up to the majors in early June. Getting called up to Cleveland in the major leagues, is that a promotion or is that punishment? One might ask that question, and this Cleveland team was really bad. In 1985, they lost 102 games. They hadn't finished higher than sixth place in the AL East since 1977. But this team that Corey's getting called up to was promising. When he's called up in June, they're over 500. That's a measure of success by Cleveland baseball standards. They had a really good core. Joe Carter is having his best year. Julio Franco, Pat Tabler, Tony Bernazard all hit over 300 that year. Brooke Jacoby was an all-star at third base, so Corey ends up getting moved to the outfield. He also played a little bit at short. So they hit 284 as a club and scored the most runs in the majors that year, averaging 5.1 runs a game. Unfortunately, they also gave up the second most runs, 5.16 runs per game, which the math there ain't so good. They had two knuckleballers in the rotation. We love that. But one of them is 47-year-old Phil Necro. Tom Candiotti <laughs> is the ace of the staff. He went 16-12. and 12. He had a 116 ERA+, plus, which pretty good. But, you know, when you got two knuckleballers at the front of your rotation, it's going to be uh, an interesting time. The team's other all-star, other than Brooke Jacoby, was pitcher Ken Schramm, who went 14-7, and seven, but had an ERA over 4.5. And, and Schramm was one of those guys who bet Keith Comstock a bottle of champagne about who would, would be the last in, in baseball. Spoiler alert, it was not Ken Schramm. Cleveland would end up getting within five games of first place by late July, but then finish around 500. But still going into 1987, there's a sense of excitement building here. They won 84 games, which, while around 500, was still the most wins for a Cleveland team since 1968. Yeah, so a lot of hope and promise coming as as Corey joins the team. 
And he was a revelation. He hit 24 home runs and hit 272 in just 103 games in, in 1986. And at the time, that home run total of 24 home runs in 103 games was the 14th highest total for a player with fewer than 110 games, tied with Ken Phelps in 1984 and one behind Babe Ruth in 1925. Although Corey had a much lower OPS than the rest of that list, only 799, because he didn't walk very much. He only walked 16 times during that time. But his offensive numbers earned him Rookie of the Year consideration in a year that was a very good one for AL rookies. He finished fourth behind Jose Canseco, Wally Joyner, and Mark Eichhorn, who had one of the best relief seasons ever. Corey's defense was a little suspect, but he did have a really good arm. He had 10 errors on the year. Only two of them came in the outfield. He briefly played shortstop, 34 games at shortstop. In those 34 games, he made eight errors. So his defensive value is a little skewed due to that poor play at short. Those eight errors were bad enough to rank 35th among shortstops, even though he only played 34 games there. So defensively, still room to grow, but also he... He wasn't locked into a position yet. That big rookie year in 1986, as we discussed, David, led to Corey earning the little cup on his 1987 all-star rookie card for tops. Also got him a spot on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Corey and Joe Carter are pictured with the Cleveland Indian logo and an unfortunate headline, Indian Uprising, Believe It. And also unfortunate that it said, Cleveland is the best team in the American League. (laughs) Inside, there was an article which used another bad pun and said, Pow, wow, the Lost Tribe is back, thanks to the bats of young sluggers Joe Carter and Corey Snyder. And in this article, they talk about how Cleveland is the real deal, and they praise Snyder not only for his bat, but manager Pat Corrales says, Corey has a Roberto Clemente-type arm which seems to be a regular occurrence on this podcast, people being compared, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, to Roberto Clemente. Corey said, and this goes back to Corey being just a nice guy. He just said, the fact is, I'm just happy to be here. I'd play anywhere. So he's happy to be playing shortstop, playing outfield. Not exactly what you expect from a college superstar coming off a really good rookie year to just be happy to be there. He did his best to endear himself to the city of Cleveland. He said, I remember when I came through Cleveland with the Olympic team, my first impression was that it was an ugly place. Since I've been here, I've seen what they've done to rebuild downtown and make things better. I think all the Cleveland jokes come from people who've never been there. And I think Corey's right. Cleveland's a pretty cool place. But was Cleveland the best team in the American League in 1987? So for the answer, let's go to our second card, 789, the Cleveland Team Leaders card. On the front, we see a great picture, and on the back, we'll have our answer to how good they actually turned out. First on the front, this is a beautiful picture, David, with Joe Carter and Corey Snyder framed, you know, just smiling well for the camera. You can see that little mustache of Corey's kind of barely poking through. Joe Carter also has a mustache here. Good mustache work, guys. Good lighting on this. So with the the dark clouds looming in the background, maybe the beginning of a night game or kind of a twilight. 
this photo is taken from kind of a, a low angle and well lit from below. So it's I think it's a really cool picture. One of the better pictures on these team leaders cards that we've seen. Some of them are odd, candid shots, and this one more of a staged and artistic look to it. Yeah, looks good. Now flipping to the back of the card. So on the offensive side, the stats here look pretty good. You've got Julio Franco hitting 319. You've got Corey Snyder leading the team with 33 home runs. Joe Carter with 106 RBIs. And Pat Tabler and Brett Butler both show up. So this is a a well-balanced leaders card on the offensive side. In reality, on offense, they weren't as good as they were in 1986. They had three 30 home run hitters but yet they scored the third fewest runs in the American League. They had okay offensive performances in a very good offensive year in 1987. But the real problem for this team is the other side of that card, the pitching side. This pitching team leaders card, the best ERA on the team is Tom Candiotti with a 4.78 ERA. Oh, yikes. And three pitchers with only seven wins. That's the leader. (laughs) Yeah, real bad. And the the Sports Illustrated article conveniently glosses over the fact that their pitching was terrible. They briefly yeah. mentioned that a 48-year-old Phil Necro was going to be in the pitching rotation and then quickly shift back to Corey Snyder and Joe Carter. Here, look at these shiny bats. Mm-hmm. Ken Schramm, who was the 1986 All-Star, he went 6-13 and with a 6.50 ERA and then never pitched in the majors again. Yeah, so this team was really bad. They started 1 in 10 at the beginning of the season. By the end of May, they're in last place, 16 and 34. The the manager Pat Corrales gets fired in mid-July and Doc Edwards is brought in to replace him. It doesn't get any better. They end the season 61 and 101. And Cleveland's 5.28 team ERA was the worst in the league and the worst in franchise history and would also end up being the worst of the entire 1980s. Oh, it's an epic fail. Yep. Best team in the American League. Famous last mm. words. And one of those that, that comes up with the, the curse of the Sports Illustrated cover. On paper, Corey, to me, on the back of this card, he looked like a star. He hit 33 home runs. That's eighth in the American League. I was eight, mind you. So, you know, let's... <laughs> I wasn't digging into advanced statistics. He had the fifth lowest on-base percentage of any player with 30-plus home runs. His OPS Plus was 89. That's the eighth lowest for a 30-home run season. He just never got on base if he wasn't hitting a home run. He also set the Cleveland record for strikeouts with 166. And he had some good and bad streaks this season. One particularly bad streak from mid-April to mid-May where he hit 167. He broke out of that slump on May 21st with a three-home run game, two of them off of Burt Blylevin. His nine errors were the fifth most among outfielders, but he also had 16 assists, which was third in the American League. The team again did him a disservice by putting him at shortstop in 18 games where he committed another six errors. Overall, not a great year for Corey or Cleveland, despite those home runs. 1988, a very big improvement in the record for Cleveland as they finished the season six games under 500. Corey spent the offseason working out with his neighbor and Olympic teammate Mark McGuire, and this would be Corey's best year in the majors. 
mostly because he was only playing in the outfield. So we had no more excursions to shortstop where he would end up spending the whole time making errors. Yeah, and in fact, he was third in the American League in right field fielding percentage and led the American League in outfield assists with 16. One of the few MLB highlights of Corey Snyder is a clip from 1988 where he throws out B.J. Surhoff at the plate to preserve a Cleveland victory. And, you know, it just shows off Corey's great arm. While he might not have gotten to every ball, when he did, he had a laser beam for an arm. I'm glad that you found in your research a a positive highlight of Corey Snyder on YouTube. When I logged in to YouTube using the 1988 Tops account, YouTube suggested a video to me immediately of Corey Snyder striking out nine times to Roger Clemens. (laughs) So I'm glad that we found a good positive one. So he was better that year, although maybe not highlight reel worthy. He only struck out 101 times, which is a significant drop. And he walked 42 times, which is a big improvement. Uh, 1988 home runs were down across the league, as we know. So Corey's 26 home runs were a pretty decent total, good for eighth in the American League. And he raised his batting average 36 points. His OPS plus was 122, which was a career high. In 89 and 90, he's limited by injury. In 89, he's hitting in the 230 range in mid-July with 11 home runs, and then he injures his back diving for a ball. The second half of that season, he hit only 183 and was involved in a mustard controversy. Apparently, there is a local spicy brown mustard that had a concession contract at Municipal Stadium. They lost the contract to a, a more traditional yellow plain mustard and Corey was invited to participate in a mustard taste test <laughs> i i don't know this is the, i don't this, this is this is the <laughs> this so is not dumb. news <laughs> <laughs> Corey snyder's season battling a slump and mustard controversy is the name of this this article <laughs> He's invited to participate in this taste test, and he picked the more plain yellow mustard over the local Mm. spicy mustard. And Cleveland fans were outraged, which, you know, being (laughs) from Chicago, we know nothing about condiment (laughs) outrage or ridiculous condiment outrage. That would never come up here. (laughs) Never. Well, 1990, he's slumping again. He hits only 233 with 14 home runs. No more condiment uproar however the slumps themselves did put him in conflict with cleveland's management and coaches including hitting coach jose morales cleveland is about to start a rebuild that would lead to the great teams of the 90s they had sandy alomar carlos bayerga and albert bell so it's about time to make a move and with snyder slumping and in conflict the team trades him to the white Sox for sean hillegas and eric king And his time in Chicago was not memorable, for me at least. (laughs) It kind of was for Corey. The White Sox are coming off of a 94-win season, moving into their new ballpark, and they'd always had trouble finding a solid right fielder, and Corey's going to compete for the starting right field job. He had a good spring, and manager Jeff Torborg tells him he's going to play a little bit in right field, some in left, and then on opening day, he starts in left. Sammy Sosa starts in right and hits two home runs. According to Corey, after that, he's told, you can't hit righties, so you're only going to play part-time. And so he slumps because he's not getting any playing time. 
And he's fighting with White Sox hitting coach Walt Riniak, which is interesting because in the initial trade announcement, White Sox manager Jeff Torborg says, Corey Snyder is a devoted student of Walt Riniak. Corey had visited Riniak's school in 1989, but then when he went back to Cleveland, they told him that Walt's tactics weren't going to work with his swing. After his career, when asked about it, Corey said, Walt was a great guy, but he wanted to try to change everybody to hit a certain way. Head down, off the front foot, drive the ball up the middle. It was an unnatural swing for me. I wasn't a line drive hitter. The organization expected me to work with him, and basically it was Walt's way or the highway. So according to Corey, the disagreements were more because of coaching inflexibility. And he said, I was coachable. I listened and I tried too much. And Riniak had his critics, including Ted Williams, who thought that Walt's methods took away some power from hitters. And when Riniak was working with Frank Thomas, uh, some managers said that what Riniak was doing was criminal, that he was taking away Frank Thomas's biggest power, which is home run swings and turning him into a line drive hitter. But Carl Yastrzemski, Carlton Fisk, Wade Boggs, and Frank Thomas all credit Walt Riniak with playing a significant role in their Hall of Fame careers. Snyder was a big swinger, and Riniak maybe tried to coach that out of him, and it didn't work out. So he plays only 50 games for the White Sox, hits 188, and gets traded to Toronto. With the Blue Jays in 1991, he ends up playing 21 games and then is released. So... That didn't work. Then signs with the Giants as a non-roster player in the offseason. And it's a bargain for the Giants to try to take a chance on him. And he has a resurgence thanks to hitting coach Dusty Baker. Corey said that he found a, a tape of his swing from 1988 when he was at the height of his career. And he said that he watched that old tape and got his mental attitude into a better space, relaxed, and went back to basics. Dusty's approach is maybe a little less scientific than Walt Riniak. He said, I want him to ride a wave to the beach and not worry about falling off. I don't know what that means, but it worked. Dusty's a chill dude. And so maybe Corey Snyder, also Californian, maybe the riding the waves. I don't know. But it worked for him. He hit 269, 14 home runs, and he played every position other than pitcher and catcher. So showing some versatility and a willingness to play anywhere, he earned the June Player of the Month Award for the National League, hitting 372 with five home runs and 24 RBIs. Yeah, and ends up earning a decent free agent contract with the Dodgers, a two-year, $3 million contract, which is pretty good considering where he was in 1991 with a non-roster spot. Corey ends up playing wherever he can for the Dodgers. Daryl Strawberry was supposed to be the right field starter, but he had injuries and slumped all season. So Snyder ends up playing 112 games in right field, then some at third base and some at first. And he gained a very important fan in Tommy Lasorda, who said, quote, if you don't like Corey Snyder, you don't like Christmas. That's an important fan. It's good to be on Tommy's good side. And Corey had a decent year at the plate, hit 266 with 11 home runs. He did lead the National League in strikeouts with 147, but you know what you're going to get with Corey Snyder. He's going to strike out. He might give you a little bit of power, and he'll play wherever you put him. Going into 1994, he actually thought he was going to compete for the starting third base job, and then the Dodgers signed Tim Wallach, and Corey had a limited role, only playing in 73 games, mostly in left field at this point. He hit only 235 with six home runs, and his two-year contract was up. 
He had a couple minor league attempts with Boston and San Diego in 1995. And when the strike happened, he decided it's time to call it quits. He tries a little bit of a comeback in 1997, spring training with St. Louis, but that doesn't turn out. So closing the book on Corey Snyder, a career line of nine seasons in the majors, 247 average, 149 home runs, 488 batted in with 902 hits and 992 strikeouts, but 83 outfield assists from right field, which is 81st all time in major league history. So how about in retirement? He went into coaching. He had a baseball training facility in Southern California and then later opened one in Utah. He's also had a well-traveled coaching career with stops in Hawaii, in the Mariners organization, in Mexico, as well as in Taiwan with the CTBC brothers. Ooh. And I did reach out to at Painted Cap, friend of the show Andrew, for some background on the brothers. And Andrew told me that the brothers are one of the original CPBL teams from 1990. Although for most of their history, they were known as the Brother Elephants, which I think is a better name. Sorry yeah. that they dropped the elephants, but they do still have the elephant in their logo. And they're one of the two most prominent teams in Taiwan, having won eight of the 32 CPBL championships. The uni president Lions have won 10 championships, so they're pretty strong rivals in the CPBL. They're one of the wealthier and more visible teams, like the Yankees of Taiwan. And Corey was brought in to manage in 2017. It's a pretty high-profile position for a guy who'd had a, a few managerial positions in the minor leagues in the U.S., and his team finished under 500, but they made the playoffs, and they won in the first round against their rival, the Uni President Lions. They lost in the Taiwan series, but still, good job, Corey, for making it out of that first round. In 2018, the team started slow, and Corey left in September to go to California to help his family who was dealing with the wildfires. He ended up getting fired at the end of that season with the team having underperformed. In more recent updates in 2020, he does he own the Hyundai dealership? No, it's he just a... works there. He was selling cars. And there's this good announcement video that kind of shows what he looks like now, which is uh, he looks like Kenny Rogers. His blonde hair has turned to bright white. But now Corey is back in managing. Just this past week, he was announced as the manager of the Northern Colorado Owls with a Z in the Pioneer League. It's good to see Corey back in the coaching game. Corey's retirement in 1995 was partially due to the fact that he and his wife, Tina, have six kids. So there was a lot of work at home to do. He spent time with his family, coaching his kids' teams. His kids are very important to him. His Instagram handle is SnyderDad28. <laughs> and it's a lot of pictures of a proud dad and a proud grandpa. His last post was congratulating his son Taylor on getting his bachelor's degree. And Taylor was drafted by the Rockies. And as of 2021, is playing in AAA. One of his other sons, JC, played at BYU just like his dad. Another one of his children has a an emotional story. His daughter, Amberly, was a professional barrel racer, horse riding, barrel racing. In 2010, she was driving to a competition. She was unfortunately not wearing a seatbelt and veered out of her lane while looking at a map. She overcorrected, went off the road, and was ejected from her vehicle, hitting a fence post that broke her back. She ended up paralyzed from the waist down. 
After extensive surgeries and rehab, she was able to ride a horse again and is now a motivational speaker, and her story was turned into a Netflix movie, Walk, Ride, Rodeo, in 2019. Quite a story. Now that we've looked deeper into Corey Snyder, who, back when this card came out, was a young player full of promise. Now what do we think after looking into his story more? Corey's still remembered in Cleveland for his cannon of an arm and his power hitting and is still a fan favorite, even if they didn't win the American League title, as Sports Illustrated predicted in 1987. And Corey Snyder is a quintessential 1988 Tops podcast guy. He had that 1987 Tops all-star rookie that I coveted as a child. He had a mustache. He hit 30 home runs and struck out a lot. And there's this video that Matt referenced earlier about Corey against Roger Clemens. In his career, he struck out 12 of 23 at-bats against Clemens. He had a 0.87 batting average. He struck out those nine straight times, and then he popped out to end the streak. As he goes back to the dugout, his teammates are all cheering for him. They're giving him <laughs> high fives, that he's laughing and, and high-fiving, even though he hit a weak pop-up. That kind of tells me a little bit about Corey. <laughs> like, you would think this big power hitter, this guy who had this great background, this great college career, this Olympian, might be more frustrated and show that frustration and be more angry and slam his bat down or something. But it seems like he kind of rode the ups and downs of his career. One article suggested in 1987 that he hadn't ever had a slump or faced adversity like that. He had been this golden boy. But he bounced back in 1988 before falling into another rut that took him even lower, that got him cut in Toronto. And then he bounced back again with productive years in San Francisco and L.A. And in retirement, it seems like he's bounced around a little bit, but he stays at it and keeps working with young players to try to develop them and spends a lot of time with his family, with his kids and grandkids. And he just seems like a really good guy. So, I don't know, I... When I was looking at this card, I thought that I might be disappointed in Corey's career, but it just kind of seems like he had a productive time in Cleveland and then was able to turn it around and turn it into a nine-season career when maybe he could have been done a lot sooner than that. Yeah, stuck with it through a lot. And so a, a great story, not the best of mustaches, but a, a good career and a good story. So Thank you, David. Thank you to all the Cleveland fans at home. Please remember to send card suggestions or requests to us. You can find us on our Facebook page. We're at facebook.com slash 1988topspodcast. And thanks for listening. If you and your friend Corey starred in the movie Blown Away, the one with Nicole Eggert, not the other one, we'd love to hear from you on Twitter. We're at tops 1988 Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.